This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Seth. My name's John. And we're going to talk about The House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh, 1950, no, 1851 yep. novel. And, uh, John, you're going to read us the two paragraphs that H.P. Lovecraft talks about this in his, uh, giant essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature, which is kind of what, kind of what made me want to do this podcast. Wish me luck. But foremost, as a finished artistic unit among all our author's weird material, is the famous and exquisitely wrought novel, The House of the Seven Gables, in which the relentless working out of an ancestral curse is developed with astonishing power against the sinister background of a very ancient Salem house, one of those peaked Gothic affairs which forms the first regular building up of our New England coast towns but which gave way after the 17th century to the more familiar gambrelled roof or classic Georgian types now known as colonial. Of these old, gabled Gothic houses, scarcely a dozen are to be seen today in the original condition throughout the United States, but one well known to Hawthorne still stands in Turner Street, Salem, and is pointed out with doubtful authority as the scene and inspiration of the romance. Such an edifice, with its spectral peaks, its clustered chimneys, its overhanging second story, its grotesque corner brackets, and its diamond-paned lattice windows, is indeed an object well calculated to evoke somber reflections, typifying, as it does, the dark Puritan age of concealed horror and witch-whispers, which preceded the beauty, nationality, and spaciousness of the 18th century. Hawthorne saw many in his youth, and knew the black tales connected with some of them. He heard, too, many rumors of a curse upon his own line as the result of his great-grandfather's severity as a witchcraft judge in 1692. From this setting came the immortal tale, New England's greatest contribution to weird literature, and we can feel in an instant the authenticity of the atmosphere presented to us. Stealthy horror and disease lurk within the weather-blackened, moss-crusted, and elm-shadowed walls of the archaic dwelling so vividly displayed. And we grasp the brooding and malignity of the place when we read that its builder, old Colonel Pinchon, snatched the land with peculiar ruthlessness from its original settler, Matthew Maul, whom he condemned to the gallows as a wizard in the year of the panic. Maul died cursing old Pinchon. God will give him blood to drink. And the waters of the old well and the seized land turned bitter. Maul's carpenter son consented to build the great gabled house for his father's triumphant enemy. But the old colonel died strangely on the day of its dedication. Then followed generations of odd vicissitudes with queer whispers about the dark powers of the Mauls and sometimes terrible ends befalling the Pinchons. Mm-hmm. So... I think one of the things that you can see in this, this massive for him, you know, most, most stories and novels, he gives like half a sentence, mm-hmm. right? Or he just, just names checks it and then maybe gives you a plot, a bit of the plot if he thinks it's cool. Uh, this is what I think is so funny is Lovecraft loves architecture. And so he spends <laughs> yeah. talking about the actual building and how that helps the story. And, 
it is very I, I think it is very integral to to gothic fiction and and I mean I'm I like thinking about the house and uh in the same way that I think Lovecraft does mm-hmm. and its effect on the family and the I, I think there's a line in the book about how real estate um and you know setting up a a pile of a castle for your you know your lineage to live in is somehow evil Hmm. And yeah. at the end of the novel, what happens is they they abandon the house. They, they, yeah, they leave. Yeah, um, and it's fascinating. I think I, I think this is a very interesting novel. I can't say it's like I loved reading it, but I, there's lots of great stuff in it. Lots of um, lots of very interesting turns of phrase, and also like a little bit of. I mean, I'm not a character lover, but there's some pretty cool character studies in here yeah there really are and that i think that's what um endeared the book to me actually is is the characters in hepzibah with her her wild uh flights of her sour face and her (laughs) yeah her sour face and her kind heart yeah yeah um and then phoebe who's you know pretty um pretty stable and and then clifford and and holgrave who we'll get to i'm sure yeah, Clifford. Um, Clifford's a, a really fun sort of. He's he's like the ghost or one of the ghosts, anyways, in there. But um, but yeah, you're right. The house is a character. I mean, I think we need to almost look at the house as a character in the novel because it absolutely. It, so uh, you, we were saying before, John, you love this book. I do indeed love this book. I really what, do. What think makes you love it so much? <sighs> I love the characters. This book came at me a little bit out of left field. I've, I've loved this book because I remember picking it up, not for school, just, you know, in school they hand you, here's the... Oh, this would be a terrible book to read in school. I oh, think. says you, says you, because <laughs> no, in school I, I think, they, I force, would... they force on you the scarlet letter, and yes, that yeah. is... I, that'd be... That is a... Oh, God, that, that book is a sentence. That, it that, is. That, that it book really is. is a trial unto itself. It's not like it's a bad book, you have to be in the mood to read it. You can't get an entire schoolroom of people to be in that mood at that time. I suppose I love this book because I was in the perfect mood to read it and I devoured it, I think, in a single eight-hour day. I blew a whole day off just just (laughs) reading it and experiencing it and feeling so, so weirdly connected to it Today, these people seem like people that you'd know today in a way. And I, yeah. I know a lot of people don't, don't quite grasp that. I don't mean in their frippy, frippishness. I don't, I don't mean in the things around them. I mean, there are people in trailer parks just like Hepzibah Pichon right now, yeah. taking yeah. care of their damaged relatives and trying to keep what little dignity they can. That those opening scenes when she's She's going to be a merchant now, and Mm -hmm. it's like a dagger in her heart. She has to turn the house into a business, and she hates it. She's clinging to the strangest. Maybe someone will come from over here and save me. Maybe someone, and each situation, with each, with each. Maybe a, a relative from England will come across. I picture, <laughs> I, I picture another person with a, with nothing to look forward to sitting at a trailer park, scratching away the silver foil, hoping <laughs> that he, they win the lotto. Yeah. It's, it's use, it, it's, it's useless, but it keeps her 
thinking that maybe things will get better. And in the end, when the when she makes her first sale, it's not a triumph. It's a surrender. And I feel so sad for this yeah. person. There's a real tragedy when that little boy comes in and he, yeah. he, uh, he wants... He wants the the gingerbread. I think it's, Jim I think Crow. it's a gingerbread. Yeah, Jim uh, a Jim Crow, a little black black yeah. boy or something, right? And he, he, she actually drops. Uh, oh no, I think that's right after she gives it to him. She won't even sell it to him because then that makes her a merchant. And then of course he comes back, He's back to get to another one. That she, that's right. But she makes him pay the second time because she she realizes you know if I don't actually yeah. I give everything away. Uh, this is not. This plan's not going to work. And then she drops a gingerbread elephant, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, damn! That's like half a day's profit right there." <laughs> yeah. And uh, what I think is interesting is do do you think she know? Uh, do you think she knows that her brother's coming at that point, uh, and that's why she's going to have to support him? Is that why she's starting this business, or is it I, just I, the? I, I, Financial for her own self. I believe so. For some reason, I've always felt that she either either she actually knew that he was coming, or she felt that he was coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, did he get it like a thirty-year sentence, or did they just let him out? For, we don't he's know. Going right? to be out sooner or later, and I have a I have a reasonable guess as to when right. he's going to be out. They said this, and it's this year, yeah. so he should be coming out any minute. Yeah, and I have nothing to. It seemed intentional. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's it's fascinating because the plot is. I mean, I was looking at the Goodreads <laughs> reviews. <and laughs> they are they're they're all over the map. It's generally it's well received mm-hmm. uh, if you average it out. But there's a ton of haters, and I totally understand why. It's just not a normal book. From you know, if you go to the bookstore and you pick up a novel, it doesn't. This doesn't. It doesn't look like this, right? The the plot is. Hard to discern. It's pretty minimal too, and there's it's very... just stuff. There's like people in scenes and yeah. and lots, you know, setting up the setting. But I can't tell what's happened. Like I I don't I don't know where the story's going. And if you're following it as a projection, um, you have to sort of look back from the end and say, aha, now I see where all those mm-hmm. threads came from. Right. The final scene. I, I actually kind of like the. <sighs> The sort, the sort of half together stumbling through nature of the plot, because that in his own way is kind of how life evolves. When was sure. the last time you yep. could, you can actually say, well, I met this person, I met this person, at some point in time, this person's angry mother is going to come bursting through the door in five, four, three. <laughs> Things just yeah. stumble to, just stumble together on you. And yep. it often seems like, like the characters aren't entirely aware that they're in a novel, and I know I'm not trying to be intentionally thick here. I mean, <laughs> it often seems seems like he's adding things and and uh, acquiring things in a very organic way, and yet mm-hmm. he knows how it's going to end. He knows what's going, to, so he knows what he's aiming for. But unpredictable things or unusual things occur with with pleasant regularity. I genuinely yeah. enjoyed the nature of this book. 
Oh, I did too. I mean, it's it's the little things in the book. The boy, the the humor of uh, writing, you know, the boy biting off the head of the gingerbread man, and the like. That, the mm-hmm. conversation of, of the two men who keep passing by and speaking, speaking of Hepzibah Pinchon and her business, as if she wasn't present. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. another business of a poor business that this is going to fall through. Just as they wander <laughs> through <laughs> until the very end of the book, when the exact same situation is presented. And their opi- and their opinions are completely reversed because that's mm-hmm. the way human beings are. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I, I I also see you know all this um, this hoping you know you you're hoping you can scrape together another little few dollars. It it, it would really speak to Lovecraft <laughs> as well because uh, I mean that's him right. It, yeah. it, this is essentially a book about his family. Um, he's got that, you know, some sort of a family curse. He's got a couple of Hepzibahs in his life, at least, right? I've always equated him to Hepzibah, and I've always just always looked at this book and thought, Hepzibah is this book's Lovecraft. This book's Howard yeah. Phillips. Hmm. Just it's desperate and sad and clinging to what are probable allusions to their history anyway. Yeah. And, 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 uh, it just feels like there's a um a number of layers that are just if you just let them stew long enough in your mind you'll be able to decode everything right yeah. so one of the funnest parts i think for me is when phoebe comes um the uh, uh, is showing her around the house and she goes out into the garden shows the family chickens yes. right and the family chickens are like the like the Pinchons themselves. They are a you know a, a rare breed from from Europe. Right? Yeah. And actually, it's funny because they call them a race, mm-hmm. just like they call the Hepsib not Hepsib, the, the Pinchons are a yeah. race. Right. Right. Which is kind of strange because it makes it sound like they're all interbreeding, you know, amongst themselves, like yeah. some sort of mouth uh, folk or something. Sure. But the other um, interesting thing about the chickens is that the the kind of the chief rooster is is called Chanticleer, which is an allusion to um, Chaucer's uh, nun's priest tale, which is nice. um, it's not it's not one of the most popular tales. I mean, you think of the Miller's Tale, but in terms of uh, scholarly reception, critical reception, that that tale is kind of seen as one of Chaucer's best tales. It's um, it's told in a barnyard, and it's sort of um, nice. it's uh, it's a Homeric epic. Um, with chickens, basically. <laughs> you just, so that's a great I, tale. Oh, goodness. That cool. You just drove a dagger to my heart because I just re- I just remembered, and now I'm feeling sad for remembering it because it's stupid. You ever see a horrible <laughs> cartoon called Rock-A-Doodle? No, so. not. It's about a rock and roll singing rooster whose name I just suddenly remembered, if this is the one I'm thinking of, is Chanticleer. Oh, uh-huh. boy. And it just, I just suddenly go, oh, God, that I know that, that that horrible, horrible movie, and it is horrible, had a character with, whose name might have been an allusion to this book. Which, in turn, yeah, is an allusion to Chaucer, yeah. which, if you break down the name, and I'm not, I'm not good at a, oh, etymology, it a but, you know, clear just, so, yeah. you know, the name sounds like clear song, so, you know, it, um, <laughs> it might work for a rock chicken movie. Mm-hmm. The um, the thing is, is that those chickens in I mean, in this story are so almost they I want to, like, go out and look at those chickens because I, I want to see what's going to happen to the plot. So 
if this is the one of the things, she, she, Phoebe just introduces herself, right? And then they're off in the garden talking about about these chickens. And then yeah. he says, here you go, and it's nice crumbs for you. And then uh, one of them actually looks like Hepzibah, too, which is pretty funny. <laughs> but it says, um, this chicken, she says, this chicken really treats you like an old acquaintance. Um, and then it, it, those vulnerable personages in the coop, too, seem very affably disposed. You are lucky to be in their good graces so soon. And she's, t- this is, um, uh, this is Hepzibah talking about how the chickens are responding to Phoebe. Um, you are lucky to be in their good graces so soon. You have known me much longer. Uh, they have known me much longer, but never honor me with any familiarity. <laughs> well, the day hardly passes without them, my bringing them food. Miss Hepzibah, I suppose, will interweave the fact with the, her other traditions and set it down that the fowls know you to be a pinchon. <laughs> and and then um, she says, uh, the secret is that I have learned how to talk hens and chickens. And then uh, this is, oh, sorry, this is a young man. Uh, so this must be, um, uh, what's his Holgrave, name? Yeah. Uh, Holgrave, right. But this is, this the is one who's a, writing the uh, history of the Pinchon family. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, uh, ah, but these hens, these hens are from an aristocratic lineage yes. and would scorn to understand the vulgar language of barnyard fowl. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, okay, so not they don't get fed every day, right? They sometimes have to go uh, fend for themselves, but they are sort of a representative of of the of the house as a and and I, isn't their their coop like a um it's like a multi pronged affair like it it has its own seven suggestive gables suggestive of the seven gables I right so I I think I mean that's some pretty damn good writing I, I agree I agree this is a really well written book um overall and I think that's why I enjoyed despite um, some of the duller um, plot moments. And I agree there are some spots where it drags, but even in those points, the writing is just so good. That it's There's some sentence-by-sentence sentence writing in here that is masterful, yeah. absolutely masterful. And there's a... I, I want to... I'll, I'll let you go, because uh, uh, you guys talk for a minute, because I want to find... There's a really great speech by Clifford later on about evil mm. that I want to bring up. So... Uh, Cool. John, let's hear some more about why you love this book. <laughs> why I love this book. First of all, it's a, it's a book that connects you into so many different other books. Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. Sorry, I got notes here. Over and over again, Lovecraft makes allusions to this particular, this particular book, this particular story. Uh, it, I, I, if I remember correctly, I think that uh, this was uh, M.R. James's second favorite book. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne story. I think his first favorite was Young Goodman Brown, which I have never read, and I feel I should. But son of a gun, it's actually pretty good. Actually, that it's pretty good. Yeah, it it, it keeps coming back to me that I should. Indeed, part of me insists I have, but every time I every time I get the the chance to read it, something pops up and. (laughs) But anyway, the picture in the house, uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Now the shunned house, I. been told that that's connected here, but son of a gun, I, I suppose only if you're talking about how old the house is supposed to be. I often think, no wait, sure. no wait, the shunned house does make sense. <laughs> uh, for some reason, in the, in, in the back of my head, 
it's the picture in the house that, that I, I don't think connects in with there. It's if the building's very old and there's an old man there and it, it doesn't really have a lot to do with the story except that the dwelling on age. Lovecraft is human beings are accessories to a good house. It, 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 when, when you mm-hmm. when you look at that, that's the way a, a lot of a lot of um gothic inspired fiction can be anyway. The human being is really just a concept walking around on a grand set, which you spend forever speaking of. This is the this house. This is this forest. This is this garden. And in the middle of which, here's hope and charity about to be confronted by strife. Yeah. They're they're not real people. They're just concepts. And I suppose that's. I understand that you have the same feeling with this particular book. I mean, Hepzibah Pinchon is more of a concept than an actual constructed human being. Clifford comes ghosting in over here. He's the spirit of the past. And then here's Judge Jeffrey Pinchon. He's the, the crass and, and, and mercantile mm-hmm. future. Even though he's a judge, he's really very... Yeah. He has He has... If he were appearing today, he would be a businessman, not a judge. Yeah. They're, they're, they're mm-hmm. concepts, but... They're very well-drawn concepts that yeah. I have seen repeatedly in the real world. If they're stereotypes, they're not so much, they're not so much the, 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 the conventional stereotypes of fiction. They're mm-hmm. the stereotypes of people you actually meet. I know so, so if, many of these people, and th- this problem, this story has played out over and over again in the real world as often as in fiction. Sure. Yeah, it's like Rambling. it's like allegory, but um, but with some depth to it. I mean, um, I I can't do a podcast without mentioning Tolkien. <laughs> Tolkien um, <laughs> dislikes allegory because you know I think he finds it flat, and also but his he other uses it all the time. Sure, <laughs> but the the reason that allegory works in Tolkien and also in Hawthorne is that there's depth to his allegory. Um, mm-hmm. It's not like this um, Pilgrim's Progress where it's like, oh, well, there's pride over there on top of that hill and that's what that's supposed to be you know it's it has some interpretive um wiggle room on the part of the reader that book is a chore it's funny in the list of stories the uh, you know lovecraft you know uses the one i was thinking of is the dunwich horror and the thing is is you know there's no horror in this book really i mean there's a couple of grisly scenes i guess and a couple of uh, cool turns of phrase that you know might chill you a little bit, but really, it, it, this is the. I mean, the word I I when I read, I think it was it was the one set in in England, uh, the Delapore family. What's that one? Oh, um, uh, rats in the walls. The rats in the walls. So that that's the one where I learned about atavistic guilt, like the the sins of your ancestors. Is I mean that mm. that is a, a theme that Lovecraft loves to use. Uh, we're going to do a show on uh, the strange facts concerning Arthur German and his family, and that is a story about you know finding out you know what your ancestors. My ancestors were ape people, just <laughs> hey, like everybody hey. else. It's called the White Ape, but I know. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, not merely were like, they apes; they were the best, most interesting apes Africa had to offer. Even pretty cool. it's his yeah. racism, Lovecraft has to be an elitist. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's right. They were, they were, you know, they were drinking tea. <laughs> you know, they were very high, high bred. Um, but yeah, so this atavistic guilt thing is is pretty cool 
in in Lovecraft. It comes up again and again and again. And in the Dunwich horror, they're just not. They just don't feel very guilty about it, right? It's this. There's this old cursed place where everybody outside of the town, outside of the household, is like, ah, you can't trust them, folks. <laughs> They've got some weird things going on. <laughs> and it's it's like um, Average Farm remembers. <laughs> I love that accent. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's got a uh it's got a an atmosphere of, you know, this small town with an old house and, you know, the wizard Waitley, right? The wizard Waitley. And of course everybody in in the Pinchons family is sometimes considered a you know, everybody's uh Saying someone else is a wizard. Uh, you know, I'm not the wizard. You're the wizard. <laughs> the malls are the wizards. Now, see, yeah. yeah. And there's something also yeah. weird going on here that's very, again, very mid 19th century, uh, with the obsession with uh, Poe does it too with with um, hypnotism with mesmerism. Yes, we have that whole bit with um, Alice, which is one of the creepiest, mm-hmm. probably maybe the creepiest. Um, Part of the book, even and I, creepy with it, the blood drinking, just because it's so um, yeah, it's got so many undertones of you know sexual control and all sorts of creepy implications. Yeah, and uh, the thing is, is you know, it, uh, the way I think about how mesmerism and and hypnotism work as a as a genre trope, it sort of has a a peak. And then it sort of, it never goes away. People still talk about it a little bit in literature, but it sort of just declines. So in the 19, mid 1950, uh, mid 19, the mid 20th century, in the 1950s, um, there's an obsession with, uh, telepathy and, uh, Esper stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was just huge in science fiction. And what's happened to it? Well, it's pretty much died. Why? They sort of exhausted all the ideas about it. But the thing is, is they're also talking about it like it's a real thing. Like there were people at universities trying to study this stuff. Mm-hmm. It was crazy, man. <laughs> like there's nothing there. Uh, well, well, I yeah, guess it's but, crazy, but you don't know there's nothing there until you explore it. Right. So, but how yeah. does it become? How does it become a thing that you know, like mesmerism? Right. If you if if you read into it, which I've I've because I was fascinated. Why is this stuff? What, what does it mean? Well, think about it. okay, mesmerism. Phrenology, uh, uh, spirit, spirit contacting. When people yeah, when this starts, cool. to, when this starts to pop up in, in fiction, it's generally because the the writers become obsessed obsessed with the concept. Exactly. The world yeah. has become obsessed with the concept. You exactly. treat it like an actual science for a while, and then for you you have a, you a just doctor, realize there's nothing a doctor there. speaking of this subject here. Everybody gets it caught on, and then in poof, in the middle of that, you have a book that hinges on some situation where perhaps if we draw out the fluid from his eye, we will see the last <laughs> thing he. Saw and you don't toss it out as just a magic thing. Like maybe if we toss these cards in the corner, they'll tell the runes will tell us who killed who killed the person. You mm-hmm. present it as an actual fact, and mm-hmm. in the in, in the the book it becomes a fact. In this book, hypnotism is an actual factual mm-hmm. superpower which really mm-hmm. does exist. That's one of the things you have to accept in the book. It's just. Yeah. It's like in a Tarzan movie. It's, time, it, it, it's yeah. like in a Tarzan movie. Quicksand is everywhere, and it will just <laughs> suck you under. And no, it doesn't really exist in the real world. 
But for this nature of this Tarzan movie, yeah, it's there, and you got to accept it's at it. At the end of every every commercial break, there's mm-hmm. a there's a uh, quicksand that's going to trap somebody. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, so, there's there's this feeling like that it's just it's there and it's there to be used as a trope. We we would say now, you know, that it's just they then grab hold of it and then put a lot of the plots, um, you know, mystery in there. It's like the the writer's just a little bit ahead of the reader and what what's actually possible, and so the reader's like, "Wow, that's cool!" And then they read the next book, expecting to you know see more about mesmerism, and this sort of keeps this hysteria, like literary hysteria, sort of keeps things going. You know, Poe wrote a couple of ones with mesmerism, right? And one of them, one of them is like the way he wrote a lot of his stuff is. Is there just stories in the paper, and you don't, whether they're true or not, you have to, yeah, you know, yeah. glean on your own. Genuinely thought that there was a fellow named M. Valdemar who That's was right. genuinely hypnotized. It's in France, how do we know? Exactly. Yeah. Well, actually, I think, I think that was supposed to have occurred in New York. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I don't remember. I, I don't remember. Heaven help me. No, I think you're right. I think it's, but it was like names have been, exca- uh, you know, uh, redacted. The names for, have been yeah. changed, but it it's could been, be from yeah. anywhere. Yeah. yeah, and and I mean, he he was doing that all the time. There was a balloon hoax he <laughs> put in the paper, and all sorts of different, you know, lies essentially <laughs> that he's written up as nonfiction, uh, nonfiction, but are really, you know, hundred percent fiction. So, crazy writing. Are we saying it's, that um, that Hawthorne? believed in mesmerism or believe that it was possible or is this um I don't know I don't know I believe he probably thought it was possible and was basically taking you know the the written opinion of well this does this and this does this he was going oh okay and he was translating that into the story I don't entirely think he was he was reading a book about mesmerism and going bullshit but I mean (laughs) he'll use it definitely not saying that it's I believe that he really thought it was possible, though I don't think that as time went by, it dominated his mind the way spiritualism dominated, uh, what's his face? Conan Doyle. Holmes, yes. Yeah. Mm, and then yeah, you sunk into every dang thing he did. <laughs> yeah. God in heaven. Him and but, you spiritualism, know, like Glenn Danzig and Satanism, it just sinks <laughs> into everything, and ultimately, it's ultimately, it's like, yeah, I, I understand you believe ghosts and fairies talk to you, but at the same point in time, tell me the detective story. Yeah. Well, you know, he was a smart. Yeah, there's, there was somebody talking about smart, stupid people. He was a smart guy who was also incredibly stupid, and that. But you know, it seemed like it was. It's like. It, I always think about that X-Files poster, you know, I want, want to, to believe. believe. Um, there's two ways of, of reading that. One is mm-hmm. that explains why you believe in all this junk. And the other one is I'm very interested in this subject, but I'm just so skeptical. I think that's a, I think that's a, you know, a, a photograph of somebody's Frisbee. You know? <laughs> I would not to believe something. in UFOs or Bigfoot or God yeah. or something, but you just have uh, or mesmerism. Or to, you just have to present me with better evidence. Right, mm-hmm. right, yeah. and so that's why that poster. I mean, although it belongs to uh, Mulder, yeah. um, it applies to both characters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now the thing is, is that show I think can't really last very long because Scully's always being 
you know, she's always missing the final scene that the audience gets to see and Scull- uh, Mulder gets to see, right? So that's why that show sort of goes off the rails for me, um, because you can't have that tension between the skeptic and the believer if the, if the audience is already in. Oh you know, come the, on, we're, we're, we're in the skeptic. We're, we're in the we're in the skeptic I know we've position when we start. Foot, I know we've yeah. countered this, but you can't yeah. expect to believe it, the slug man. It's like after right. a while, yeah, yeah, yeah. you just feel they should you should say say. Uh, Scully, we have got to go to uh, Virginia because there uh, there's uh, burning witches, and those witches are um, sending out mental ab- mental waves that are influencing uh, crop circles. Scully yeah. should be going right. I'm on it, with yeah. no question. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna get my camera. I'll be right back. There's um. This makes me think of John Keats um, wrote a lot of letters, and they're like bits of literary criticism and thoughts on literature. And one of them, um, he mentioned something he calls negative capability. And basically this, according to him anyway, and his theory is it's, it's the ability to read a text and be in doubt and, um, mm. be okay with that. Mm-hmm. So like he, he mentions Shakespeare's King Lear as an example of that. And I think he, at least based on that, um, assertion, he, he probably would have, um, liked this book, uh, mm-hmm. a lot. Suspension of disbelief? I, is that basically? Well, that's I mean, similar to, yeah, that's Coleridge, right? so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I've got a, I've got that section that I wanted to read. It's, it's by, um, I, I'm pretty sure this is, I want to say this is Clifford talking. I, it's, it, the attribution's not super clear. By the way, the narration on the, um, audiobook that I heard, uh, by Mark F. Smith for LibriVox is excellent. I, I, I started off thinking, oh, this is just a competent reading. But when he actually does the characters, he's actually really quite good. And, you know, Hepzibah, if you look at the word cloud I generated, <laughs> that's, that's the main character right who's talking, right? Um, and, and he's got, you know, Uncle Venner is great in, in this. Um, I think he's a fun character to talk about. Um, but I wanted to read this section because I think this is sort of a, a key to unlocking some of the mystery of what's why this is kind of a cool novel. Um, this might this might not be Clifford, but I think it's Clifford. It might be um, uh, Holgrave. Uh, great name, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he says, "Yes, my dear sir," said he. "It is my firm belief and hope that these terms of Ruth and Hearthstone, which have so long been held to embody something sacred, are soon to pass out of men's daily use and be forgotten." Just imagine for a moment how much human evil will crumble away with this one change. What, what we call real estate, the solid ground on uh, to build a house on, is the broad foundation on which nearly all the guilt of the world rests. A man will commit almost any wrong. He will heap up an immense pile of wickedness, as hard as granite, which will weigh as heavily upon his soul to the eternal ages, only to build a great gloomy dark chambered mansion for himself to die in, and for his posterity to be miserable in. He lays his own dead corpse beneath the underpinning, as one may say, and hangs his frowning picture on the wall, and after thus converting himself into an evil destiny, expects his remotest great-grandchildren to be happy there. I do not speak wildly. I have just such a house in my mind's eye. Boy. Wow. It's almost something to do a Marxist line. Marxist reading of that. A Marxist, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I, I, I see that. I mean, it, and what do they do at the end is they, they leave the house. I mean, they go and live in, uh, the judge's house, but I, I think that's what they're gonna do, right? Yes. Actually, in a way, this is almost a gentle retelling of the fall of the house of Usher. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Except uh, I'm, I'm much more br- drawn, drawn the up. The House of Usher with the for sale sign. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's not quite a... That might have been a pretty good ending. For sale. <laughs> the foreclosure of the... <laughs> The foreclosure of the House of Usher. Yeah, that would be a gr- oh, that would be a great story. <laughs> yeah. would. So, um, yeah, there, uh, this uh, the, the other word that sort of besides you know death uh, being on this tag cloud that really drew me is the heart, and almost every instance of heart, if you if you do a search through, is tied to Hepzibah. And I know you know it's, it could be just the but her heart is it makes us think she's going to have a heart attack or something. Mm-hmm. So it's not talking about her kind heart, but a heart comes up hundreds of times, I think. And it's like even one reading of the of description of the house is that it's the chambers, right? The chambers of the house and she is the center of the house, she's the heart of the house. And and that I mean it she's so kindly yeah to her brother she's so kindly to the little kid she is kindly to uncle venner who uh you know he's like the town crazy man or yeah. something right and he's a, he's a beggar or something really right <laughs> he goes around from house to house doing whatever works available to get a little food to put together to make his his meal and he's got this plan of having a farm one day is that going to happen <sighs> No, I don't think in the confines of the story it ever will happen. Right, and so when at the end they say you're going to come live in the uh, Clifford says you're going to come live in the the cottage that's in the yard of of the judge's house. Right, and that's like oh my god, this is so human, so kind. Some strange guy. He's not really anybody's uncle. Yeah. Um. He, uh, he said he's he's got one tooth in his head or something like that, and, <laughs> and even Hepzibah, the later on we're we're told even you know her noble uh, ma- old maid doesn't have all of her teeth, and it's like God, these people are really old and they're just falling apart, but they're so good. I think they're metaphors for the best of New England, perhaps, and, and, and the mindset and the mindset of the uh, of of Hawthorne, you know. Kind Contra, you know, comparison to the judge, who mm-hmm. I suppose, or <clears throat> sorry, yes, Judge Jaffrey. I all, I'm always taken aback by that name, Jaffrey Pinchot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I always think that's a misspelling. No, it isn't. Every every copy I have, it's, Jaffrey. It's, it's funny because he's a judge, and he's supposed to be. I guess he's a reincarnation kind of of the colonel, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Who who himself was the accuser uh, of. Of the malls, right? You're the it, it's it was like the colonel is the military authority, the judge is now the civil authority, and nothing's really changed. Um, he's he's his plan is to is to get Clifford uh, either to tell him where the document is, or I mean this is getting into the plot now, right? What little of the plot there is. Get Clifford to tell him, or I'm going to send him to the crazy house. The document yeah. that is the heart and soul of of his plan, and yet at right. the end you find it would be worthless. And in yeah. a strange way, one has a feeling that Judge Jaffrey should know that yeah. no such legal document would hold up. But he has taken this knowledge and put it 
in the back of his head. He, he, he's yeah. looking for it. It's the symbol of everything that will make, make them successful. And he never takes the time to go, but, you know, I don't think it would – to, to look up uh, in, in any, any sort of law book and go, oh, well, this document was written XYZ hundreds years ago. It's useless. <laughs> There's no way he could present it to whoever the heck was president at the time, James Buchanan. And Buchanan right. would go, well, yeah, I guess you own XYZ number of states. Um, yeah. Enjoy. Well, I mean, it, it I don't makes think of it as a weakness. I think of it in the same way that, you know, human beings tell themselves over and over again, this will work. This will work. Even if no, it no, it's won't. not a weakness in the book at all. It's no, just a yeah. weakness in his mind. It festers and, there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there's, I mean, there's some interesting sort of pseudo parallels in American history that I think are kind of interesting. So, you know, Pennsylvania, I always love the story of how Pennsylvania got its name. I was named after the guy who owned it. Yeah, yeah the like, woods. It's like his woods. William it's Penn. Literally. Yeah. yeah. He it's was like, the okay. largest landowner in the English world for a period of time because yeah. of his ownership of that thing. It, it's, it's like, you know, they see the same thing in uh, Africa with roads, right? Mm-hmm. Roads for these own country yeah. for yeah. a while. It's like, okay, so these guys are, these are what we would call, um, they'll kill anyone or do anything to get anything, right? Yeah. Uh, William Penn himself was actually a reasonably decent fellow. Oh, he was. He was a Quaker, it's, wasn't he? Yeah. Yes. Uh, In the end. Unfortunately, everybody who moved to Pennsylvania seemed to have been a crazy <laughs> Lutheran who loved to shoot Indians. So it ultimately <laughs> well, didn't that's, matter. That's what I, I want to mention that's in here. That's, I mean, there's not much in the word. There's a little bit about slavery in here. Um but one of the things, you know, when you read Poe that is almost completely absent, there's one story in which there's anything about slavery, um, is that it's the great thing that's missing, right? It's the great, it's the what, what's not being talked about. And of course, at the time, if this is right before the Civil War, right? Mm-hmm. So there is, it's, it's funny that it's so not talked about. And even in this book, it's, it's not really talked about. I mean, it is in the North, I guess, but even so, the, the, the things are there. But going back to the, the, uh, colonial era where the house was built and where the family got its curse, right? What about the Indians? <laughs> Jesus Christ! You killed them all and took their land, and now you're complaining about. Uh, there is some absolutely no reference that the killing the Indians was in the least little bit. It was part of God's will. Absolutely, yep. it, you know, it's completely ignored. And and you know, he w- there was a couple of Indians uh, who signed a, a document. Um, yeah, well, every time you make a treaty with the Indians, like, like okay, you, you're allowed to have that part in North Dakota. Oh, sorry, no, you can't have the part in North Dakota. You can't have anything. You're all gone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, the East Coast, how many Indian tribes are left? There's a few in, in New York. There's a couple here and there, but, you know, it, it's, it's true in, it's true in, you know, Canada too. The, the island of, uh, Newfoundland used to have Indians. Yeah, yeah. And they're all dead. Well, there's another there's another part from the Lovecraft essay that I want to read that I think it's kind of appropriate here. Um, um, He's sort of introducing Hawthorne more than this story, but he says, Here instead is a gentle soul cramped by the Puritanism of early New England, shadowed and wistful, and grieved in an unmoral universe which everywhere transcends the conventional patterns thought by our forefathers to represent divine and immutable law. Hmm. So, you know, I think that's where the... uh, 
this particular New England brand of horror um, kind of comes from is this the disconnect between the Puritan worldview and the realities of you know, colonial and, and early American life. Mm-hmm. It's, it, 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 I don't think you've completely evolved out of it, you Americans have evolved out of the Puritanism. No, 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 I agree. I uh, agree with that. But I, I like the trend that it, that, that is going towards, but I think it's, it's largely responsible for the lack of revolution in, in the fact that, you know, there's lots of people with very little work, uh, you know, they, I guess dropping the number of work, work hours is a good idea. Um, because that theoretically should make people happier and such. But, um, I mean, it, the dialogue in the government, you know, the elected representatives is, ah, these are just lazy bums. Yeah. The mm-hmm. lazy bums with three jobs trying to get, you know, two parents yeah. trying to raise kids. It's like, I don't think that's exactly it. It's not lazy bums. It's not takers on the, bo- on the bottom of the society that are, you know, making things terrible. Self-serving political hack work. <laughs> but but uh, I think you know I think it, there there is Not a you I mean the co- the no, concept. No, Sorry, no, I think, it's a thing which pulls at me often. People buy into it though is the problem, right? Is they they say you know if you just work hard, um, you can get ahead, and it's true. If if you work hard, some people can get ahead. If you you know you have a decent inn somewhere, if you have um some decent education, you've got some connections. You, absolutely, you can. Yeah. It happens all the time. If you have access but, to hardware and you can do a podcast like this and got, you can get <laughs> on the internet and all that stuff. Right. If you're um, rich like Jesse Willis, you can, you can oh, create wow. a podcast and don't create your own reality. <laughs> I, agree. I think that's it. You drive a 23 year old car because you don't think, uh, you don't think you need to uh, upgrade. You're Why driving you a 23 year old car because that 23 year old car is your house of seven gables. <laughs> there it, you go. You, it is the symbol of your family. Uh, there you go. The the the, <laughs> the Willis family. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's turning into the ship of Theseus, though. Oh because boy! Yeah, I've replaced a, lot, a great many parts. Yeah. yeah. Engine's still the original, though. But a lot of pieces of it are. So speaking of which, little bit, little bit of trivia, little bit of trivia. The Pinchon family actually existed and were the ancestors of American novelist Thomas Pinchon. Oh uh, wow! He, Weird. He, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne used them as a basis and then had to spend forever explaining to, to denying that he had. Uh, oh no, no, not at all. Because it, I think I don't think he wanted the Pinchons to actually be upset with him. Uh, but the house itself is, exists separate from the Pinchon family and was mm-hmm. owned by Hawthorne's uh, cousin Susanna Ingersoll. Mm-hmm. It's a tourist attraction now and very well marketed one because whenever I type in Seven Gables into Google, yeah, it comes up over and over again. That popped up. So I was looking. For yeah, they're they're doing a very good job of, of making a tour. What, what's so funny though is 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 like you're going to see a cursed house and you think, oh, it's going to be all covered in moss and the way no, no. Lovecraft describes it, it's beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You look at the old photographs. I, f- I found a 1915 photograph of yeah. the House of Seven Gables. It looks. Horrible! It mm, looks yeah. like a wreck. I don't mean it's actually falling apart. I mean the exterior is just all withered, and I, I can't yeah. help but look at it and think that would be a big drafty mess. Yeah, there was no mention of leaks. 
you know, in the in the novel, as far as I can tell, they didn't talk about, you know, oh, I can't go in there. It's full of leaks. Yeah. But it it, it feels like the house feels gigantic because, you know, the the there's one tenant in one of the gables and there's Hepzibah sort of, I feel like she's running around in the on the lower floor and then there's the store and and then you don't really know about how many rooms are lying empty. It's just, it's there. They're all there. Are, what you, you almost wonder if there's more tenants around. Yeah, you know, it's the same kind of feeling when, gets, when, when you read a book about uh, some, you know, a, a British marital lord. Or I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, manorial mm. lord. I'm in charge of this. This is the so and so house, and there's always one wing that's just never used. Right. An entire wing of the house just used for storage or some such. That seems yeah. to be a constant running theme, yeah. and. I I think the same way here. You have you have a family that once probably filled that house, but yeah. right now poor Hepzibah is just the last pea rattling around in the pod. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, soon to be joined by joined by a few others, but ultimately speaking, the, I mean, the house it's, feels it's, doomed from the start. Yeah. Well, um, you think I mean that spring, which is mentioned many times in the book, for you know a spring that never gets drunk out of, right? Yeah. Um, and and never quite covered up completely either, right? They they just it it sort of represents sort of the infertility or something. That sort of uh, you know Clifford's no children. The 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 only way to get kids out of this you know this family is to have them go off somewhere else and become mm-hmm. another branch. And that there's something cool about this you know the guy upstairs blowing bubbles out the window. <laughs> <laughs> like, is he getting his childhood back? He's just starting again. But he's got a mind in him, even though he's got this weird... He's like a ghost that haunts the place, but he's he's also a person. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of great stuff in this book. It it just it, it doesn't it doesn't make us think of horror at all. Mm-hmm. It's totally gothic and totally of its sort of milieu, you know, the area. Yeah, it feels like you know this town, the people in it. It's 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 really a cool book. Yeah, it is. Well, I wanted to um, talk about briefly the um, Hawthorne's preface to it, where he kind of defends yeah. writing uh, weird fiction. Well, I'll go ahead and read this. Mm-hmm. Um, when a writer calls his work a romance, it need hardly be observed that he wishes to claim a certain latitude, both as to its fashion and material, which he would not have felt himself entitled to assume had he professed to be writing a novel. The latter <laughs> form of composition is presumed to aim at a very minute fidelity, not merely to the possible, but to the probable and ordinary course of man's experience. The former, while as a work of art, it must rigidly subject itself to laws, and while it sins unpardonably so far as it may swerve aside from the truth of the human heart, has fairly a right to present that truth under circumstances, to a great extent, of the writer's own choosing or creation. If he think fit, also, he may so manage the atmospherical medium as to bring out or mellow the lights and deepen and enrich the shadows of the picture. He will be wise, no doubt, to make a very moderate use of the privileges here stated, and especially to mingle the marvelous rather as a slight, delicate, and evanescent flavor than as any portion of the actual substance of the dish offered to the public. He can can hardly be said, (laughs) however, to commit a literary crime, even if he disregard this caution. So I thought that was just really um, interesting um, that he he's, felt the need to kind of defend it. Apologies. Yeah, yeah. 
making I'm making no apologies. Here's my apologies. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, I, I'm not a super huge fan of gothic fiction, um, but this is this is a fun one. I also it's it's funny like how it is. You know, I'm getting ready for this. I I tried to watch the the 1940 movie with yeah. Vincent Price. Oh, I don't like that movie. Nope. Um, it, it, this is a novel that works best as a novel, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, some things adapt really well, but in that one, they had um, who is the woman who played Mildred Pierce in the original Mildred Pierce movie? Uh, Margaret Lindsay. Uh, I don't think I don't remember that. It's Hepzibah, so and so is German. I, I, I yes, she's a young actress, anyways. I, I only have like, a couple of notes about the movie. I didn't like it very much. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> anyway, she. She's supposed to be Hepzibah, and I'm like, wait a second, she's young and attractive. Um, I thought that would be Phoebe, but no, that's that's Hepzibah. I'm like, that's not right. Right. And I, I'm well, like, oh. For one thing, as I have in my notes here, in this adaption, Hepzibah and Clifford would make lovers rather than brother and sister, and the film uh-huh. ends with a double wedding. Which... Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> it's, it makes the it makes the night the 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 little tw- the little fifteen minute nineteen sixty three short yeah. from Twice Told Tales seem like a triumph by comparison. And trust me, it's not. I mean, I yeah. thought I thought Twice Told Tales was sort of entertaining, but still, it's like one leans way too far to the maudlin, and then Twice Told Tales, it's everything is ham handedly. Yes, there's a ghost and there's death yeah. everywhere, and <laughs> both of them miss the point. Yeah. This would be a difficult a difficult book. I don't think it would be a difficult book to make into a movie, but it would be a difficult book to make into a movie that people would understand right from the start, because yeah. all of the haunting is implied, but not thrown at you. Uh, some th- something like a lot of the supernatural elements from the, uh, the house on, sorry, the, the haunting of Hill House. Mm. Right up until the time the ghosts start to fire cannons at the walls, if you've ever seen the movie. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's a genuinely good movie. And I don't mean cannons at the walls. I mean the, the sound of rapping at the walls becomes dominant at one point, one point of the film. But mm-hmm. it's a genuinely good, subtle uh, story of a haunting. A, mu- a better book than a movie, but still a pretty good movie. And mm-hmm. this this book... I mean, Nothing in here is really overt. Every time you have a count- encounter where so and so is probably a haunting, it's not coming from the main from from the, the the main character's genuine experience. Someone else is relating the story. Someone else yeah. is telling the story. Matthew Mall is inspiring the imagery in somebody else's head. But you never have a point where somebody turns a corner and wow, look, there's the harpsichord and it's playing by itself. By itself, mm-hmm. yeah. There's um there's a couple of comic book adaptations. The classics illustrated one absolutely puts the ghost on the first panel and then the ghost <laughs> is basically haunting every panel. It's like I'm not going to read this. This looks terrible. But <laughs> it, it, it tries. It's it, it's not as horrible as it could be. The ghost is suggestive. And the art's not good either. No. The one I I like is the Pocket Classics version, and that's actually a lot of a lot of the shows that SFF Audio readalongs end up being are like, oh, okay. Jesse digs out his his Pocket Classics. <laughs> and says, oh, I haven't read the House of the Seven Gables. Maybe this would be good. <laughs> and the thing is, is all the books in there in that collection of Pocket Classics are all classics, right? They're not like 
half classics because they're public domain. They're classics. And so, you know, you've got a good number of novels that, you know, are really cool, but they're not, there's no gothic element or there's no horror element or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm running out of the ones that I can, I can le- legitimately put in to SFF audio, but I'm really glad I, I chose this one because it, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a long meandering character piece about a house that, you know, is embodying a curse, I guess. Um, but I also wanted to talk about how this, you know, this gothic tradition is, is, is popping up in other places. So I was watching this really great show called The Duchess of Duke Street. I don't know if you guys ever heard of either. No. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it was like, um, uh, there was upstairs, downstairs, right from mm-hmm. the UK. That's the old, and, old, the original version, if you will, of of uh, Downtown Abbey. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and Downtown Abbey, I mean, it looks really pretty. It has, you know, sort of the soap opera y, you know, progression of a family and their troubles and their, you know, successes or whatever. But the writing is just, it's okay, but it's just not awesome. Whereas when you you're doing upstairs, downstairs, you you're you're experiencing the lives of the family and people get killed and it's like, they're devastated. You know, world war one happens and you know, bad things happen. It's very real in a certain sense. And, and the weird attitudes between the, you know, the servants and the, you know, their bosses is like, we're subservient to you and that's a good thing. And, and that's like coming from the head, the head people, right? And the, the lower people, they're like, you just got to learn this because they're, they're better than us. There are betters. And like, wow, that's really weird. And yet the, you know, the writing commits to it. Mm-hmm. It's very so, upper class British. Y- yeah. But it's also like saying the dignity of being a servant. Mm-hmm. It like, is also very pre-war Confederacy. And things change after, after the war, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, Upstairs, downstairs happen, and then the same writer, uh, John Hawkinsworth, he also did the Sherlock Holmes with Jeremy Brett, by the way. He also created that. Um, he did another show called The Duchess of Duke Street, which is a long, uh, sequential story about a woman who starts as a cook, uh, you know, sort of a low-ranking cook in a, uh, hotel, I think it is. Maybe it's a household. And she, um, is soon elevated, you know, in the first couple of episodes to being the most famous cook in, in England. And then the rest of the two series show is her life from around 1900 until, uh, 1925 or so. And it's got all the elements of upstairs downstairs, except it's got this strong female character who is, um, determined to make herself wealthy or at least well done. As so much of a success as a person of her class could be at the time. Yes, but she's also does she's not pretending to be, you know, upper class at all. She'll she'll hang out with the upper class, she'll cook them, but she'll take their money and <laughs> have the dignity in her own right and all that stuff. But what's cool is because it it's this sequential thing and it's focused on one person specifically, you get a real sense of character like you do with a novel. And that is not true of most things. So you know, if you novelized Upstairs, Downstairs, which I think has been done, you have to do it in several different books. Mm-hmm. With 
with the novelization of this, it's just her, basically her story and the peripheral characters, you know, there's these sympathetic, you know, there's like a, an old guy who's, who's, you know, an octogenarian head waiter and he's always <laughs> sniffing and falling asleep, but he, he thinks he's Sherlock Holmes, right? <laughs> like, he's great. He's a great character. And you think, oh, okay, well, he's going to die soon. He lives through the whole thing and it's like, wow, that's a surprise. <laughs> yes. And then there's this, the, there's this front uh, front doorman. Uh, you find out, you know, he's got a secret that's, um, you know, very dishonorable. And he's like, oh, that's wow, I didn't see that coming. And then World War One happens and people get killed. Mm-hmm. She has an illicit affair. In fact, that's right in the I think the first episode. She she becomes mistress to the King of England. Oh wow! And it's like, what the hell? Where do you go and, from there? Right and and. <laughs> It's an amazing, amazing show. Yeah. Yeah. The reason I want to I want to bring this in is because it, because of these characters who you know they're not particularly attractive. None of them, they're just good actors, right? The mm-hmm. actors playing them are really good. The writing's really good, and then you've got this element where because it has a long time to develop, like sixteen episodes for the second season, you know, fifteen for the first or whatever it is, thirty episodes. You get really well attached to the characters, and. One episode is a gothic, classic, haunted house sort of castle in Yorkshire. And wow. it's based, enti- it's not like, it's not like, um, they, you know, just dropped it in there. It's actually totally based on what's coming before. Cause you, the seeds are planted very early on. Um, somebody has an illicit affair. A uh, child is born, right? Um, and the child is abandoned, uh, by its parents and given to, a local family, right? Mm-hmm. And time passes, and then the Baron's gotten married, or whatever. The, he's a Viscount, actually. Mm-hmm. He's gotten married, and his new wife can't have a child, and she's going crazy, right? It's like the lock, crazy woman in the attic sort of story yeah. that you see in the classic Gothic. And all the, you know, the elements of the witch um, is causing the problems, so she's infertile, and she's going crazy. That's all caused by... The witch, that's all in there, but because it's done, written, you know, in the 1980s instead of written in, in our late 70s and early 80s, it doesn't have the obsession with, with the, uh, with the contemporary way it would have been done if it was done in, at the time. So at the time it would have been spiritualism and they mm-hmm. actually, you know, figure it out that way. They have modern attitudes, but they're doing it with the old fashioned. So the, the witch element is like, this is a really cool gothic story, but there's no supernatural elements at all. They're only hinted at, and they are not real. They're believed by the people, but they are not real in the world. And a case for a case could be made for that in this book, too. I mean, there's nothing Absolutely. Um, that's, yeah, like um, John was saying earlier, there's nothing overtly that suggests that anything that um, proves that anything supernatural is happening in this book. Exactly. There and is a I, there is a scene or a situation involving at, well when the when the judge is sitting there alone in the room and he's waiting and he's waiting for them to come home and they mm-hmm. slowly allude to the fact that oh wait God's given while him blood we're to- watching him <laughs> he has died. Yeah. He has. They don't say, and then suddenly he dies. No, they continue to describe the room. They continue to describe the thing that's going on in the world, and then keep cutting, cutting back to him. Why don't you get up and do this? Why don't you get up and do that? And, and then at the end, you're like, oh wait, 
the character has died while we've been watching him. And then, one after another, ghosts enter the room and right. look at the, 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 the picture and Lupe. And then in the end, one of them is him. And he mm-hmm. looks at the picture and then looks at his body. And in that one situation, it's, it's, it's just no one else is observing it, but you yourself. If it is haunted, it's haunted only to you, you the reader, right at that point in time. It, We're the ghosts in the room. Exactly. It's it's a it's a weirdly yeah. beautiful scene. I love that whole scene. Yeah, that's really cool. <sighs> Duchess of Duke Street was in seventy six to seventy seven. Yeah, that sounds okay. That sounds about right. Cool. Yes. Excellent. Excellent series. And it it does, but you know. What a novel can do. I I always forget that that's ITV and not BBC. Yeah, yeah. A lot of good. I mean, I think when you've got the BBC there to to give good game, then the other channels they really have to they have to bring the goods. Otherwise, why the hell would you watch it? Sapphire and Steel. I haven't. I I saw the first episode and I was like, what the hell's going on? (laughs) <laughs> like this is the first episode. Who are these people? I think it, it it's a bizarre series. Uh, you got to do a show just about Sapphire and Steel. Period. Well, we we've never technically done a show. Yeah, about a television program. I know. I'm just being. Yeah, I I don't know how. I I have to find some literary connection. Maybe mm-hmm. you could do a show concerning the um, if you will, the heirs to Doctor Who, because that sure that is surely what Sapphire and Steel was. Not to mention, yeah, I guess it would be. What was it? The American program. The, I think it was the Voyagers with that guy with the watch that let him travel through time, and he brought that kid with him. I don't. I don't know what I show you. I don't know that 80s, one. It was an '80s era program. If I remember correctly, it was also famous because the fellow who played the time traveler died on set in an act oh, no. involving a stunt. Because huh. I had completely forgotten about it, and then when Brandon Lee had his accident, yeah. oh, right. Crow, they kept going back to that particular that particular story. Hmm. It, Was it a gun incident as well? I don't re- I don't remember, but oh god. If it if it, if it was in America, it, it makes sense. It would be a gun. <laughs> would be a gun yeah. <laughs> well, you're dying for us in the movies. Guns yeah. are our pit bulls. Yeah. <laughs> aren't, aren't pit bulls your pit bulls? Pit, the, the guns are our pit bulls because people who love them do nothing but talk about how safe and wonderful they are. Yeah. And oh, right. people on the outside are just always hearing about how they've either torn apart their, their child, or shot someone yeah. in the head. Yeah, pit bulls don't seem, they don't seem to, you know how they always have in books, they always have the, this dog, like these, like these chickens, they really respect you, they see something in you. Pit bulls, they, they have that gene missing, like, <laughs> I, 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 you know, they, they don't say, oh, this is a kindly child, they say, eat head. <laughs> at the very, le- at the very, crunch. pit bulls are, are a matter of, of, breeding and raising. I've known some people who've had pit bulls who have been absolute sweethearts. I've never known anyone who had a gun that I didn't somehow feel, oh, what the hell, why are you owning that thing? Well, it's Chekhov's whole thing, you know, if if there's a gun, it's going to go off. (laughs) There's only one thing it's supposed to do, put holes in human beings. (laughs) That's its goal. I mean, no one would defend the car if the car's primary use was to run over people. If that was it, <laughs> people also inexplicably traveled everywhere. And people would say, well, just focus it like this. No. The point of view is transportation, but a gun is just supposed to put holes in people. I can put holes in animals, animals too. too. Yeah, True enough. 
is not no. much I suppose better, I but... should say the handgun. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, I don't think you go hunting with a handgun. That's pretty true. No. Handguns are definitely designed to put holes in people. I would be impressed with somebody who went hunting with a handgun. It's <laughs> <laughs> work. I don't know. I, I think you'd just you'd say, why are you bringing a handgun to this hunt? Wow, this has really devolved from, from House of Seven Gables. I think it's time to turn it off. <laughs> I can't, I can't wait. I cannot wait until, until you've worked your way through your pocket classics to the point where you're just down to the last few. Nubs, yeah. And she's like, hi, this is, uh, SFF Audio. My name's, uh, Jesse Willis. And we're talking about <sighs> Silas Marner. Um, I've got that. That's on there. Yes, I know. That's a book I've tried to read, and ultimately I have only been able to get through. I can't get involved with some people's useless problems. And sometimes you go back to the 1800s, and the problem is genuinely, oh, my goodness, I have a cousin who might be mad. And that's the focus of the whole story. You just want to gouge your freaking eyes out. Deal with it and move on with your life. I couldn't get into Scarlet Letter. We were talking about Scarlet Letter earlier, and I tried to read that, and I, I couldn't do it. It's ju- it, it's not even that long a book. No, it's uh, I, not. <laughs> have you have you ever read? Um, I think it's called Anna Karenina. Oh gosh, I've not read that either. Um, I tried twice to read that whew. book. Each time, I've gotten literally. I I, I have gotten three thirds of the way through before. What? Sorry, sorry, three quarters of the way through before I just tossed it aside and said, "I don't care Man. what happens in your life, you useless woman." How is it that? that, that that um, Gustav Flambert was able to say almost the same exact story in Madame Bovary. Is that the one I'm thinking of? Madame Bovary, yeah. Bovary, yeah. Sorry, got Simpson stuck in my head. Almost the same exact story, and yet for some reason, make it interesting. And, oh my goodness, I want to have sex with this person, but I want to have my children here, and I want to have... And, and of course, in the middle of it all, there are the Russian peasants who like being Russian peasants. Don't change things for us. We like being, but it, it, there's a. Oh God! It's it's just not one of those stories I can read. Oh. And I read Moby Dick twice. I love Moby I, Dick. It's fantastic. I love Moby Dick. It's. A, I think that I think that's going to be a, a done eventually. Maybe can we? Do, can we three three twenty? Is there enough uh, SFF in that to? I think I th- I think it's it's pretty close. I mean, it's close. Yeah, enough, it's, I would there go. Enough, there are enough allusions in so many other stories. Yeah. Yeah. Trek or or whatever that that you can go back to the to the to the basic premise of Moby Dick because that story has been told so often since then. Moby Dick is, if if you will, the American King Lear. It doesn't matter if you if you've read it or not. You know the story because you've encountered at yeah. least a dozen movies and books just yeah. in your lifetime that that pattern themselves after Moby Dick. It's, so it's so intensely uh, spiritual too that it you know it could. It's bordering on SFF just in that standpoint. Well, I was I was thinking, you know, there was another person other than Lovecraft who who is obsessed with uh, having a really cool house in sort of a New England with a legacy and all that. It's um uh Joe Hill in Lock and Key. Have you guys read that? I've heard uh, of it. I keep hearing wonderful I've things about it. I've heard of it because he's the son of Stephen King. Right, so uh, I'm not a huge, huge Stephen King fan, um, but I, I really like what Joe Hill's done with this this comic book series, and the art is fabulous, really, really fabulous. And it has, at its core, a house called Key House, 
Um, and in the house are, it's a family that's lived there for many years. The town is, by the way, called Lovecraft. Oh, um, wow. Um, so <laughs> there's the illusion is right just, there. Just a <laughs> I, minor I, suggestion. Minor suggestion, yes. yes. Um, and then it, what's cool about the premise of the of houses is that the young people in the house are always um, influenced by something that the house has that's unique, which is there's these keys that unlock special doors. But the doors and the keys are not always clear as to where where goes which goes where. So there's one very famous one in which there's a key that uh, you look around and you look around and you're trying to find a door that will unlock. Well, the only way to see it is to have two mirrors because it's in the back of your head. The keyhole is in the back of your head. And you can open somebody's head up and put ideas in it. Or you can take things out and take memories out. So there's like a house full of magic keys. And there's another kind of key like it'll make you a giant. right? Or another kind of key that will make you um, a female. Or an opposite of whatever your gender is, right? And the keys are, you know, sought after by, you know, the bad guys. But only young people know about it because once you get to a certain age in this family, you forget everything about the keys. It's like a magical thing. And underneath it all, and literally underneath the house, um, it goes back to revolutionary times and there's some mysterious, um, metallic, uh, otherworldly Lovecraftian stuff that these keys are made out of. And it's really, really cool in the comic book, but it's this architecture of the house. I don't think there's seven gables, but there's, mm-hmm. it, it's sort of a mix of every kind of architecture, giant house, really beautiful to look at in the, in the book. And, um, it has this sort of feel to it. That's very cool. So yeah, check out uh, Lock and Key. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. What will people be eating and drinking while they're listening to the podcast? In this show, you should be <laughs> drinking... drinking Drinking blood and uh, having a nice ginger gingerbread cookie. Yeah, exactly. um, with uh, Moby Dick, you'll have a nice cup of Starbucks. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh terrible. Man.